to the three times dope podcast family what's good hey hey nice intro bro that is right man just trying to put things together so people can know we on the map and you know we out here doing what we do man like level up like sierra level up level up Uh, you're not leveling up no no i think sierra was better when she was with future all right, oh. so um, I'm, I'm going to say goodbye, everybody. It was just so good. <laughs> three wow. times. Three times, though. We are not going to engage in any kind of toxic behavior. <laughs> <laughs> That's like... <laughs> what, you, you also support Nick Cannon trying to populate... No, 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 no. What, Nick Cannon got about 100 kids or something? No, he doesn't have 100 kids. Y'all know, y'all know he doesn't have 100 kids, bro. I mean, like, but listen. I mean, like, so... The thing about Nick Cannon, and I can't speak for that, Ben. He's a isn't he a, he's a college graduate now, right? Didn't he graduate from Howard? What difference did that make? I'm just asking. I'm just I'm 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 asking some clarifying questions before I make my statements here. So, you know, I, I he had ran into some trouble. Didn't he bring uh, uh, someone from uh, the Israelite camp? Um, black Israelite camp on a show, and then they were spewing like some anti, um, some anti-Semitic rhetoric or whatever, and that kind of got him canceled, got him in hot water for a while, right? And I'm thinking if the thoughts to populate came from that ideology, and you connect that to Sierra being better with future no, and so, male so, 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 you, so, so ma'am you did that right because I said yes. what I said and then you started equating talking about Nick Cannon and populating yes. the world I, was, I wanted to hear more about how <laughs> being with someone like future is leveling up so so, so situation. first and foremost right so like if you if you're an artist in the industry right like we only see a, a, a minutia of, of who that person could really be right and so from my understanding future it's not really a bad guy uh, we see what we see on the on the outside right but like from my understanding he's a real nice guy i don't know future personally right and so therefore i can't vouch for him i can vouch for dr simmons he's a good guy right <laughs> well, <laughs> he's a level up his wife leveled up and he leveled up with his wife future uh future has some yeah, I mean, well, here's the thing, though, right? <laughs> I appreciate how we're trying to like bring this full circle. The key, though, is none of us had yeah. the right to add uh, to claim what a level up for Sierra looks like, except Sierra. That's right. That's true. So whether I'm that sure. is future and his stuff, or Russell and his stuff, or her next one and their stuff. The only person that needs to. Why are you think, with the next one? Like, what's that? What way? Why? Either why way, I guess my point is, it's another way that we have to not insert what we believe as right and true on somebody else. I was That's just complimenting about like 
how incredibly how I appreciated the additional graphics and the music because yeah. three times dope is podcast is is moving mm-hmm. into a larger we're leveling up. So yeah, yeah, I think that level up shit is trash, right? Um, <laughs> I think I think I think Sierra as an artist is trash. I just I just as a person, hey, she may be a very oh. nice person, but I just I don't like her stuff. And you guys are not gonna make me like her stuff in this in this no, hour. You don't segment. have to like her stuff. I just oh. wanna just compliment you on the work you have done to for our podcast. Well, I appreciate you. Um, so Doc, how you doing, man? How's everything going? You see Heather's choosing every, violence. Every every everything is good, man. You know, um, I'm excited. Uh y'all know I've always had a dream of supporting leaders of color in the nonprofit sector. Excited to launch the uh Micron Nonprofit Leaders of Color Fellowship, um, partnership with Georgetown, um, and giving folks access to general operating capital, because I think that's important with no strings attached. General operating capital is the hardest money to raise in uh, the nonprofit sector, and it's four or five times harder for people of color. So uh, I'm excited that I can send the elevator back down. Uh, We'll have more information, or I'll have more information on that in the application process in August, September timeframe. So I'm excited, man. This has been a life so, Doc, man, talk a little bit more about this, right? So, like, uh, non-leaders of, 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 of uh, wait, leaders of non-profit, right? Yeah, yeah. Georgetown yeah. University, right? And so it's a, what, what is it, a 12-credit program? Talk to us about the program. Yeah, Georgetown has a uh, program in nonprofit leadership uh, management, I think it's called, and it's executive program. Um, you have to do a capstone, and so there's an extensive amount of work. Um, and it talks about how do you actually run a nonprofit? And I think um, Bridgespan and Echoing Green did a report that detailed some of the challenges that leaders of color face running nonprofits. They aren't funded the same. Many funders question uh, their ability to use the money correctly. Um, and so there's a lot of anti-Blackness, anti-Latinaeus, like anti-anything, right? Um, and so I think that my hope for the program is, and it puts you in community with other leaders, mm-hmm. right? And I think that too many nonprofit leaders of color operate in a silo, in particular, if you're in a field where um, you're in, there are few, a small number of folks. So if you're in STEM education um, and you're leading a nonprofit in STEM education, there are very few uh, people of color in that space in general. Um, and so I think that it's important for folks to build community um, in a way that uh, allows them to continue to grow. Um, and, and I think from my experience, leaving K-12 and going to run a nonprofit was hard because there were things that I thought I knew. Um, and it's just different than running a school. It's, di- it's just a different thing. There's some elements that are the same, but I think um, strategies around fundraising um, are, are just different um, and I, I think that uh, it, it's, it's super important uh, to build community with each other. Uh, and so I'm excited to see folks participate in the Georgetown program. So they won't be a separate cohort. They'll be in part embedded in a larger cohort.
but they will also have extra supports. Uh, well, they'll get mentoring. There'll be some executive coaching involved. Um, and the fact that at the end, they write a capstone is not theoretical and hypothetical, but they will actually submit it to uh, the Micron Foundation to get funding uh, up to $25,000. We're working on some multi-year possibilities so that people can ask for more than 25K um, because I think you need three to five years to pilot new ideas to, to understand, does it actually work? And I think um, in nonprofit and uh, philanthropy, we don't give people that opportunity who are people of color. And um, you can have a, uh, and y'all know my position, like you can have an unproven idea that is a Princeton thesis and it can become Teach for America and get all the funding you want. I'm not knocking Teach for America. No, I, I am just simply saying that it was an unproven concept and it's actually not that radical of an idea. It's just simply the Peace Corps, right? And I'm not knocking it. All I'm saying is that leaders of color are not afforded those same opportunities to get millions of dollars to establish a proof of concept. And there's ample evidence that, you know, white leaders and nonprofits for all the good that they do uh, reproduce a lot of that uh, oppression in the nonprofit sector because those that are passed through nonprofits, right, they often don't pass it through to leaders of color. They pass it through to their own uh, network. And again, no shade toward Teach for America. Understand what I'm saying? I'm just simply talking about the process of which uh, Wendy Cop was able to accumulate such a massive war chest to essentially fund a project that was based on a thesis at Princeton, right? So there are levels of layers of privilege there. Um, and you can make the same argument about all sorts of different uh, nonprofits that exist uh, in the world. So again, not bashing Teach for America. They do some good work. Um, <laughs> Yo, that's shade. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, if you no, think when you say when you say not bashing Teach for America, they do some good work. That's shade. I mean, but shout out to Mike. Shout it's out to Mike. Shade. Shakur showed up because Shakur agreed. I saw Shakur <laughs> in the background, like, yup. Um, but you know, I'm happy to have that conversation, and and I will ask somebody after two years of teaching, tell me what you actually know. So, and I need someone to answer that for me. So nobody's going to be able to answer that for you. Correct. You know the answers to that. And so, yeah, I, but I, yeah, I, to my point, they still get millions of dollars. But I want to highlight Micron for like helping, uh, help, helping Thank black you. nonprofit leaders to level up. Right. So like going back to this concept <laughs> of leveling up. Right. Because that is a level up. Right. And so I want to make sure that we hit on that. Right. And we drive that point home every time we hear level up in this conversation. That's what we're going to focus on. Right. Well, Sierra right. didn't level up. No, oh, no, Sierra, sorry. Never mind. Sierra's track. All right. So, so, so girls in technical coding sticking with this Micron theme. Right. So, like, yeah. we're sponsoring something. And so, let's just run the video real quick. Oh, stem from dance. Let's go. For you, what does it mean to rise up? To me, rising up is just stepping out of your comfort zone and learning how to push beyond those boundaries and also learning about your environment and learning how you can use your environment to create something big. You know, this summer was special. It was an opportunity to come together as a community after a year filled with uncertainty and a lot of difficult circumstances. And for our students, just challenges socially and academically that disproportionately affected communities of color. But at Stem From Dance, we work nonstop to bridge gaps, break ceilings, and build opportunities. 
we committed to continuing our programming even when we didn't know what would happen this summer. The result, over a hundred girls in 10 states participated in Girls Rise Up. Some people think that girls can do well in STEM. What would you say to people who believe that? I will say, you're wrong. Girls, girls can learn STEM and sometimes they can be amazingly amazing at it. And when I get older, I want to be an astronaut and I want to inspire other girls to learn about STEM. My daughter Tiana attended Girls Rise Up in the summer of 2018. Since Tiana has been participating in Girls Rise Up, she's more hands-on. She's just highlighted to me that the STEM program is, is enforcing her to pursue her career. A lot of my confidence came from my experience at STEM from Dance. I felt very valued in this space and I was so inspired by all of the teachers and my fellow peers. It's just made me really confident and positive. And I just, I have like no words to say. I just love this program. H, I see, I see you glowing, H. I see you glowing. <laughs> hey, take, take, take I mean, you know, huh? I just, Let's go. there's nothing like seeing beautiful little girls, especially if they're little black girls, little brown girls, taking up space, loving themselves, being confident. Um, it, whether it is in through programs like this, in the classroom, at the bus stop, dancing, creating, in the bathroom, fixing each other's hair. Like I just, I think there is a, a natural heat and energy and glow and goodness that just radiates off of little black girls and little black children when they are able to be in spaces to find their joy and, and take risks and solve problems and laugh and just be free. And I just, I could, we could just run that over and over and over and over again. And I would, and I would be full. I mean, I think one of the things that we know about girls in STEM specifically is that a lot of it has to do not with their interests, but with their identity. And we talk about the way we create math and STEM identity. And we talk about the ways that young girls and people will say, oh, well, I'm not good at math or I'm not good at science. And it is part of their formulating an identity around what they believe they can and can't do that is heavily influenced by things that might not necessarily speak to their actual capacity. Things that may speak to the way that their teachers engage with them, the way that they engage with a particular content, some particular skill or subject, or even some of that stuff in their heads, right? Like they hear other people say, they hear their parents or others say, well, I'm not good at math, or she was never good at math, or that's something that we couldn't do. And so we have to realize that there are ways that teachers and educators can shift their thinking around the capacity and the potential of girls in STEM. And that is more than just understanding the content. It is creating space for them to do that. It's also making connections. I always love when I see STEM programs that are able to make connections with, one, things that are interesting and relevant to students and things that can be connected across the curriculum. We think about dance, we think about art, we think about cosmetology, we think about music, we think about um, technology and, and social media and the ways that they are creating content. A lot of that is around STEM, that's science, technology, that's engineering, that's math. We can't 
do a lot of the fields and, and careers and the work that we want to do without some kind of touch point with science, technology, engineering, and math, especially if we're trying to help create a future for girls in these careers. And so I just, I love that. But we have to be thinking more around like, what do we need to do in school spaces so that the same kind of joy and curiosity and commitment um, that those young girls displayed in the Rise Up happens in classrooms every day. Because while they were able to serve 100 girls, I think I mentioned, heard them say they're 100 girls, there are thousands, tens of thousands of girls, black girls and brown girls who need to be experiencing that same kind of thing. And so we have to increase access and opportunity around STEM in order for that to happen. Yeah, and that's where the big dog comes in, man. So like you guys are sponsoring them. Um, what, what, first of all, what made you select them? Why well, no? Because it's amazing, right? But like, what kind of uh, philanthropic efforts can we do as a podcast? We do as Black folks to get more people um, to get behind this kind of stuff. You on mute, Doc? Sorry, uh, I don't talk much about my nine to five uh, with uh, on the podcast. Um, for a variety of reasons, uh, but y'all know I'm passionate about sending the elevator back down. Um, it's something that was done for me. Um, it's something that is super important. And when I think about STEM at Micron and just STEM in general, right? We spend a lot of time on the technical aspects, right? Like making sure that uh, young people um, are um, doing things that are, uh, learning about the basics and the mechanics of STEM and in Micron's case, semiconductors, but we don't do much with the passion and the STEM identity that needs to happen. And um, it was an accident that I found out about STEM from dance because I was talking to one of my former students, middle school students. Now she's an engineer for General Motors in Detroit. And we were just catching up and she was just telling me about how she's frustrated in engineering as a black woman and she would love to just give more back. And I was like, interesting. I wonder if there's other people like that. And I found STEM from dance um, and uh, their founder Yamile um, is dope. Talk to her often. And we're actually funding uh, the work they're doing with Girls Rise Up um, in partnership with the Science Gallery at uh, Emory University. The camp is gonna run through July, from July 5th, I think, through the 22nd or something like that. Uh, so I'm going to visit the camp um, and I want to fund them over multiple years. Um, and um, just to see the videos, bro, is just like, and these aren't like, these is the founder of and her crew. They graduated from MIT. They went to a top level engineering school and they realized that there are other ways we can increase the number of girls in particular girls of color who are interested in STEM uh, Micron's open an office in Atlanta, so it it makes sense. It aligns with one of our priorities of supporting the Atlanta community, um, in particular uh, uh, communities of color in Atlanta. I'm unapologetically committed to it, man. So I'm excited. Uh, I'm looking to work with them to bring uh, STEM from Dance to DC because uh, they have a partnership and they're kind of doing some uh, scoping it out um, to to expand and do some partnerships here in DC. So. Uh, uh, I, I just love their work, man. And I think that it's important for people of color and philanthropy 
to fund these things and and you know and and there're going to be people inside of foundations who are resistant cuz they'll say well we've never funded them before okay but y'all give millions to new ideas all the time so this isn't actually a new idea cuz they've been around for 10 years right. we've never funded them but other people have so tell me why and so shout out to um D Mooney who's the head of the foundation for uh, working with me on it, approving it um, because of the approval process at the foundation. She believed in it. Um, April Arnzen, who's the president of the foundation, uh, talked to her about it. And they they were excited for it. Um, and we're looking to do some multi-year funding in that space. So uh, we encourage folks, apply, you know, check it out uh, because uh, I, I'm just, it, it just warms my heart to see girls as someone who's a middle school STEM teacher. And I tell folks all the time, the black girls that I had were better STEM students than the black boys that I had, right? No shade to black boys, right? But in my middle school classroom, the ones who won the awards in science fair, the ones who were super meticulous, the ones who were super thoughtful and creative about solving uh, challenges in uh, their uh, space were black girls. And I always say this yeah. as a STEM researcher and as an advocate for STEM, something happens around patriarchy as kids get older in teaching, because there are more girls in honors programs in elementary school in STEM than there are boys. But yet that trails off the older kids get. And it can't be because these girls get less interested because of their own intellect. They get less interested uh, because of how we treat them, right? And, and okay. what we say to them and how we talk to them. And so I'm committed to that um, and you know, really, I'm going to continue to pound the drum and use the, the bully pulpit I have at Micron to fund uh, organizations that work around uh, STEM identity development for girls, in particular, um, girls of color. And really, I'm going to challenge the philanthropic community to step up, stop talking about STEM and what we can do, but step up and work in communities and with organizations like TechBridge Girls, Girls Inc. DC, shout out to H for her leadership in, in, in the community in this space. Um, and I just think that there's a lot going on. And again, I'm passionate about it because I have evidence, like my own experience. There's data, there's research about the brilliance of girls um, in STEM. And I always say to folks, well, if STEM is stagnant in its creativity and it's been men who've been leading it for so long, like, well, okay, like let's try a different paradigm. Like what 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 are we what are we doing? So uh, shout out to uh, STEM from Dance. Encourage folks to check them out. Would love to do a crowdfunding uh, for them uh, to increase the amount of money that uh, they have. Um, and we should we should get Yamale on the show because she's dope, man. Like I ain't never met a black person to be in all of my time in STEM who graduated from MIT. I wanted that black people actually went there, right? So when I met this, <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do this. Like I ain't know MIT let black people in because I ain't never met don't. one. <laughs> Don't do that. I know. Shout out to MIT for, uh, you know. H, jump in here because uh, you got a partnership with Howard University for Girls this Summer. And, yeah. Uh, talk to us about that. So Girls Inc. DC, you know, all of our work is really inspired around creating opportunities for girls to be strong, smart, and bold. And all of our smart pillar work is around STEM education and helping girls to have access and exposure to STEM careers and fields. And so we are lucky that we will be back in person for our camp this year for middle school students. 
will be working at Howard University Middle School. So shout out to uh, Ms. Pro Coke for her support and her encouragement and for making sure that that is something that is important for the girls in that school and community to participate in. Um, we are fortunate that, like Micron, there are other organizations out there who really care about seeing women in STEM fields and both sharing their talent and leveraging their volunteers, right? So many of these big organizations have things that are written in their contracts where they allow folks, they must go volunteer. They must give back to the community. And instead of it being just one day community cleanup, we have organizations who are going to be providing camp supports and exposure and modules and robotics and sonographic things. So we're partnering with Boolean Girls, with GE Girls, with Grunley and with UNCEA, who are going to come in, sponsor programming with our girls for a week. Um, and we're just excited. Part of what I love about the thought of what we get to do with our camp is it's not just enough to have a really great experience that happens in that camp. Our girls um, will be getting experiences that they can then cultivate into leadership and cultivate into interest that they can take back into schools in, in the fall, right? So this isn't like, oh, I just went to this thing and like I came back. This is like, no, I did some coding. Um, I went to the birdhouse. We did an architecture project. We went on a site tour. It's about creating these opportunities that can enhance how they show up in schools and show up in classes. And that's another thing I think too. I think back to that level up piece. When, our, when girls who participate in our programs and programs like this STEM dance, when they come into classrooms and their math and science teachers are whack or not encouraging them, we give them an opportunity to stand up and to use that voice and to say, I've already done that. Do you know how to do this? And there's a leveling up, I think, that can help shift educators' identities and educators' beliefs about what kids can do because young people are getting those experiences. I think it's also a call to our community. When we want to see more that happens in and with our girls and schools can't or won't do them for whatever reason, maybe they want to focus on foreign language, maybe they want to focus on remediation, which we do too much, right, which gets us to what we'll talk about later with the gifted conversation. It allows our girls to have experiences that are meaningful and relevant that they can take back mm. into schools that can they can push the curriculum they can push the project they can talk to their teachers and their administrators about things that are interesting to them and we can like disrupt this thing that the only high quality learning happens in a classroom well the only stem learning happens in the lab there are so many opportunities for girls whether it's in camp whether it's through girls who code whether it's through architecture projects environmental justice all kinds of ways that girls and young people can connect their interests to things that matter to them. And it helps the schools get better because schools must be responsive to the things that their young people are asking for. So I love it. Yeah, that's dope. Man, thank you for sharing that. And, and you can tell from like the passion that you guys are exuding in this first portion of the show that you're really into it, right? And so I'm glad that we were able to capture this. And so we're going to end this first section of the show with the part two of this, uh, is, of this video because, you know, we need this energy, right? Like yeah. this energy is transformative. One thing that girls can do well in STEM, what would you say to people who believe that? I will say you're wrong. Girls, girls can learn STEM. And sometimes they can be amazingly amazing at it. And when I get older, I want to be an astronaut and 
I want to inspire other girls to learn about STEM. My daughter Tiana attended Girls Rise Up in the summer of 2018. Since Tiana has been participating in Girls Rise Up, she's more hands-on. She's just highlighted to me that the STEM program is, is enforcing her to pursue her career. A lot of my confidence came from my experience at STEM from Dance. I felt very valued in this space and I was so inspired by all of the teachers and my fellow peers. It's just made me really confident and positive. And I just, I have like no words to say. I just love this program. Man, so I got baby girl signed up for dance classes uh, uh, this summer, right? Uh, oh. little, hip, little, little hip hop dance, but you know, I, I know that you know, once it's time, she will definitely gravitate towards them. She already does. She already loves it, right? And I think that one of the things that we need to do is that we need to get exposure to these types of things early, especially for our young black and, and, and brown girls, right? Um, because, like yeah. you guys said, all it takes is one whack teacher, right, in order to kind of you know just 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 move them elsewhere and make them not even be confident enough to want to apply those those uh, learning skills, but. Yeah. That was a trigger, right? Because you said, H, you said whack teachers. What, what's a whack teacher? Yeah, so I think <laughs> anybody who believes that their job as a teacher is to control children is whack. Anybody who believes that their role as a teacher is to be the only person with all of the knowledge and that there is in some way a I'm smart and you are not and I will tell you is a whack teacher. That is not teaching. That is not education and we have too many of those in the classroom. What we heard that girls in that video talk about was that they felt confident. She, she said something like, what would you say to someone who says, girls can't do STEM? And her, her answer was, you're wrong. We have too many teachers who are in spaces who are not ready to say yeah. that they are wrong. We have too many young people who realize that teachers are wrong and not doing right, but who feel silenced and who feel unsafe in schools and who don't have the skill set or the allyship in other educators or other people on the building who know that things are happening in classes that are wrong and just kind of let it go because it's just cool. And so we have to think about what are teachers doing? Like Doc talked about how we have all this interest in creativity in STEM, but yet the numbers, what you say the other day, the math's not mathing. If we have all of these girls who are outperforming boys, but when we look at AP classes and enrollment in STEM and career fields, we see a drop. Well, the math's not mathing, right? So what happens there? What happens there is that they don't feel seen. They don't feel safe. When they speak up, they are silenced. When they try to be creative, they are penalized for not being in the right, you didn't, you, you wouldn't, you didn't follow the direction. You are doing too much. Why are you still talking about it? We only asked for this. And so those are all of the things that I think to answer your question, that's what a whack teacher does. A good teacher listens. They surrender space. They foster mm. hope and creativity. They learn alongside kids. They ask, they don't talk too much, right? We were talking about this the other day. Too many educators talk too much. You, there's so much power in small questions like, how do you know? Does that work all the time? What else do you see? The job of a teacher and an educator is to help cultivate an environment where learning is rich and robust and relevant and not where they sit in control deciding when you can get a Viking buck or when you can get a trick, a ticket to go into the box because I'm smart and you are not. Come on now.
Yeah. Listen, so you you just again you hit something you hit something else that's like mm. you know when we talk about just like wag teachers or let's let's say teachers that are in need of uh growth opportunities, right? So this talk time, right? Like that bothers the shit out of me. If I'm in a if I'm in a classroom and I'm observing uh, a teacher and I'm bored out of my mind, then I know that kids are bored out of their mind too, right? Because you know, as as an adult, you know, learning is different, and you know, you you can possibly focus a little bit better and be more engaged, right? Um, than a kid whose whose brain is still growing. But boring is boring, right? So like, if I walk out of there and I'm like, this is a snooze fest, then I know that it's probably going to translate into behavioral problems. It's probably going to translate into uh, excessive uh, behaviors that are occurring in that classroom. And for me, I always felt like when I was in the classroom, the number one way to prevent behaviors from occurring is by planning an engaging lesson, right? If everybody in that classroom is engaged, then nobody's misbehaving because they don't have time to do it, right? It's just so much time on task that needs to be afforded for when you're when, when you're in these uh, classroom spaces and it's not you know it's, it, the uh teach like a champion approach to time on task is totally different than what i'm talking about right now that shit is oppressive we know that right i'm talking about like time on task through tasks of love and endearment to where you're constantly affirming these kids letting them know that you believe in them and things of that nature right like i'm not with the oppressive this that happens in education, especially in at reform. Yeah. Um, at but yeah, but but that's about power, right? That's about power and control. That yes. I can control what you say, that a quiet classroom is the right one, that I'm the one who is talking, that you should track me because I am the most important thing in this room right now. And not yes. that you can allow the opportunity to like be thoughtful yes, and that whole tracking shit bo- the tra- tracking bothers me. Oh my God. Uh, tracking yeah, tracking bothers me, and and I'll tell you why. Because it's like when you think about tracking, right, and you think about uh, students making eye contact, I don't feel like that's culturally affirming because you have some cultures that it's not okay for a kid to look you in your eyes. It's not okay for a kid. So it's like, are you really taking into account everybody in that classroom if you're forcing kids to track you, given the fact that I just outlined what I outlined about it? That's not how how it's done. Everybody's right. Career. So I feel like it's just it's you know as Doc was saying, there's nuance to like how you approach certain things, right? So like I I think that you know there there, there has to be a level of tightness in your classroom in terms of uh, your ability to bring it back, right? And so I look at it like you're a maestro in your classroom, right? Mm-hmm. And when you you're a conductor, and so you're letting beautiful music happen when kids are in charge of their own learning, right? But when you it gets out of control or gets to a level in which you need to bring it back, that's your job as a classroom teacher, your ability to be able to bring that back in order to have that reset in order for the orchestra to begin playing again, right? Yeah. And so if I walk into a classroom and that classroom is silent, I know for a fact with these kids these days, learning is not occurring. Right. So like had you walked into a classroom 20 years ago, maybe somebody was learning. Right. Because then that was how things were then with those kids. But kids are different now. Yeah. And you have black teachers that have been teaching for 20 years that still have the same lesson plans that they had 20 years ago. Right. And they'll go into the day that they taught it 20 years ago and they're still in these systems. H. Right. And they'll pull up to that day. 
and then they'll teach that same lesson to these kids that are two generations past. Right, right. Two things, right. So the tracking piece about there were so many of those practices that really were not about engagement or high quality time on task, but were really sending messages about who was smart and who wasn't. And so the thought about tracking the teacher was really saying, I need you to pay attention to me because I know you guys have problems paying attention. <laughs> and if you would just focus, if I can, if I can create this um, habit of you to just watch me, then you'll be less likely to be distracted. And since you're like prone to be distracted and like prone to be off task and like prone to not pay attention, they were so many of those things were around deficit thinking around what young people could do and what they brought into the classroom. Mm -hmm. I think when we talk about these teachers who are using 20 year old lesson plans and who may be whack, we got to think about like, what's going on with your administrator, right? Like your mm -hmm. administrator should be giving you some feedback. Your administrator should be, should be creating some opportunities for you to learn, to expand, to make new connections. Part of the problem when we talk about like the way schools were 20 years ago and the way they were today, well, we keep falling back into these same archaic traditional ways of having school in a land that looks and feels and sounds and tastes very different than it does today. We can't, the way we use Zoom now is different than just three years ago, right? You can even see Zoom evolve, right? So like now there's whiteboards, um, features now there's like mm. reactions like all of these things grow and evolve because they recognize that engagement is not something that you either have or you don't it's something that you have to consistently work at and part of it is people too many whack teachers whether they're whack because they woke up that way or whether they're whack because they are underdeveloped and under supported are folks who have not been thinking about what it actually means to teach and learn and many of them some of my best teachers were the ones who were engaged in consistent learning and not this like cliche, I'm a lifelong learner, but like who really were in book clubs, who spent their summers going to museums, who spent yes, their so summers eight, attending. Eight, when you eight, put yourself in a position to be a learner, yeah. you are prone to put yourself in a better position to be a teacher. Mm. H, that, that what you just said is so important in terms of like how we approach this work and that that I think is the transition from when teachers were revered in our community to now it just being a job to some folks, right? Because when you think about the opportunities to learn, uh, the professional developments that may not be offered by your school, but you taking the own, your own initiative in order to get better, you taking your own funds in order to get better, right? That's how it was when, when I was teaching, right? Like, so I- Right, yeah. right. This yeah. is where philanthropy should support schools. Okay. Right. And this is where uh, one of my colleagues, um, uh, we're working on a project uh, called Teachers in Industry, um, where essentially, what does it look like to partner with teachers in the summer to accelerate and advance their understanding of STEM through direct contact with practitioners in STEM, right? What would it look like for teachers uh, at uh, your school, Ray, to come to Micron for three weeks, all expenses paid, to learn about what does it mean to do STEM in industry and how do you transfer that back to kids to prepare the next generation of STEM leaders, right? 
Um, we haven't done a good job of that in philanthropy. Instead, we've thrown money at things in education and in schools that don't necessarily advance the professional learning and professional development of teachers where there's a direct partnership between industry and education, right? And I think this is because you have a lot of people who aren't education experts in philanthropy think they can tell schools what to do as opposed to saying, what do you need from me? Yeah. Right. And so yeah. there's a level of accountability for folks in philanthropy, corporate philanthropy, in, in my case, to be good partners um, with schools and school communities and say, hey, what do you need? How can we be helpful? Because it may not be coming and saying, well, I'm going to give you 100 computers. That may sure. be one part of the equation. Yeah. But the other part of the equation is you can give a school 100 computers. But if you have teachers who don't know how to use uh, the computers at the highest level to train kids how to do something other than Microsoft Word, but to build formulas in Excel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you've, you've just perpetuated a problem that already exists, right? Yeah. I think that my call is for all folks in, in philanthropy who want to be helpful is to be, to your point around being a good teacher, to be a good listener. Right. Don't come in thinking you have all the solutions because you got all the money. Right. Like right. That, that's that's nonsense. Right. So but that's the key to good partnerships. Right. We want right. teachers to be good partners with families and not make assumptions about what we think they need in their homes. We want them to be present, to increase proximity and to say, what are the things that we can do to partner well with you and not make assumptions about what families need? Just like we don't want corporations to make assumptions about how they can help schools. Mm -hmm. We need to have these conversations that that are starting out with the partnership in order to have some kind of outcome, right? We need outcome driven work so that we can actually make a change and, and a difference in what we see. So, but I, I think a lot of this kind of falls on in the laps of black philanthropy and the lack thereof, right? And so like, mm. I don't, <laughs> I'm not calling anybody out. You do what you want with your money, but I just think that, um, mm -hmm. I just think that, you know, because when you look at the you look at the data, you look at the statistics from um, the amount of white, the amount of money that white philanthropy gives uh, black entrepreneurs or black people that are in, in this space. Right. I think it's like one to two percent. I was hearing it's not a lot yeah. of the amount of philanthropy dollars that go to black people. Right. But my, I, I just wish that because there's a lot of rich black people, and I don't think that we're tapping into in, into those folks and leveraging those That's folks right. the, the, the yeah. way that they can be leveraged in terms of like the yeah. amount of impact that they could have in this space. Yeah, but Ray, I do yeah. want to I want to support and echo what you're saying and continue to call out my colleagues in philanthropy, right? And and say what does it look like to have an advisory board of folks like Ray and H to help advise you on your work, to understand that. But also, and this is my other call to folks in philanthropy, is it's, it's, it's one part people who look like those who you serve, but it's also about making sure that you have enough people on the team who have experience in the space doing the actual work, right? There are a lot of people in corporate philanthropy and corporate social responsibility who are great people, right? Like I've, I've met them. But they, they, they've spent their entire career in corporate America, right? And, and there's nothing wrong with that. It just means that as an organization, you need to balance that out and have people who also have actual practical experience in the field, 
right? Not a teacher for, you know, half a second, but like people who've run schools, people who've done community organizing, because uh, it makes you better when you have that type of diverse experience and diverse thought process um, to solving uh, challenges and uh, problems. And, and, you know, and I think that you don't have that enough. And that's why when, you know, I talk to nonprofit leaders, in particular Black folks, they're like, dude, like, I was talking to such and such, and they asked me about something that ain't even actually a problem, but they read an article about it. But that's not a problem in our case. And they want to give us money to solve that problem, but it's not a problem at our school. Yeah. And, and so I yeah. think that there's a need in philanthropy, in corporate philanthropy, to bring people into, into CSR and corporate philanthropy to, who've actually done social impact work in particular on the ground right like not in theory but in actual practice so yeah and also too doc i'm sorry about your call earlier in the sense of like so why don't we have more of this happening and i wonder how much of it is like a lot of times black folks who are in these spaces don't get the support they need to take the risk right to send the innovative right. idea to say what would happen if we try because there's a level of like, I can't afford to take a gamble on this thing because if it doesn't go well, that'll be the end of any streams of funding that would ever come to any idea that I have, right? And so we have to think too about like, how folks who are in these spaces, the risks that they have to experience to even come up with an innovative, creative idea, a new way to fund something, a new project, a new partnership, a new initiative, and, and, and create our own spaces. <laughs> where folks can feel safe to take those risks. Too many folks are in spaces where they may want to take a risk, but they know that for their personal and professional credibility, that they may not be able to invest in a project that seems like it's super far off track or, or outside of the box of what we've done before. And so it gets back to like, how do we create those spaces? How do we help others who are already in it be conscious so that they can surrender some of that space so That's that right. other people can feel like there is something to learn from an investment in communities. There's something to learn from partnerships. And you yeah. talked about wanting to get better. Like, you know, Ray will push us. Everybody might not want to get better. Some people just want to stay rich. Some people just want to be rich. They want to stay comfortable. A, they don't want right, to get better. Right and they want to sleep well at night. Like, well, some of them may get better and some of them won't, but I'm straight. And so, again, it gets back to this, like, communal responsibility, this collective responsibility to invest in others. One, because others have invested in us. And two, because that's like core to what I think and believe we were put on the planet to do. And this is where philanthropy needs to be better at funding capacity building supports for leaders, that's right. right? And I think uh, as an example, Ray's a part of the Aspen Pahara uh, Fellowship Program. Uh, shout out to uh, them for building that. And I think it's an excellent opportunity to bring people together for that professional learning and that capacity building that you need as a leader to continue to evolve um, and to continue to grow. We need more people in particular in corporate philanthropy to take that leap because people will say, well, Robert, what are, what are the outcomes you're anticipating? And it's like, well, I can give you some qualitative metrics. I can talk about the outputs in terms of the numbers, but what do you mean? Are you looking for them to raise more money? Are you looking, this is just about the, the it's the heart work. It's the soul work that sometimes isn't measured in these quantitative ways, which oftentimes are deeply rooted in white supremacy, okay. right? In a very Eurocentric way of thinking about progress and growth, right? And there's nothing wrong with quantitative measures 
of outcomes and outputs. It's just that it is not always the best way to measure. Um, and there's a whole group of people in, um, in uh, social justice philanthropy who talk about, we need to start measuring our learnings, not simply outputs and outcomes. Like, what did you learn as a uh, measure of success, right? And for mm -hmm. me, uh, that's something that uh, I, I really want to push uh, folks to do um, because, you know, it's a lot of trash folks in philanthropy who ask, you know, nonprofit leaders to write a 20 page report for $5,000. <laughs> right. yeah, I mean, that's facts. Hey, I want to shout out uh, New Schools Venture Fund, right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. They have, uh, a, they had, uh, they just closed up a, a racial equity council initiative, mm. right? 